Hello and welcome to this second installment of the new Science and Life webinar series on rare diseases. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. In this nine-part series running through the remainder of 2021, we will delve into a number of different aspects of this important topic of rare diseases. If you missed our first webinar on this subject, broadcast on March 11th, please do go back some time and view it. You can find the recording at webinar.sciencemag.org. As we mentioned in that webinar, the term rare disease is not entirely accurate since collectively rare diseases encompass approximately 7,000 disorders affecting about 300 million people globally. Our first webinar discussion was broad, but today we'll be focusing in particular on the challenges of diagnosing rare diseases. Patients with rare diseases must often wait for years for a diagnosis. A quarter of patients wait over four years, while an unbelievable 50% of patients must live with no accurate diagnosis. A significant part of the problem is the lack of awareness amongst medical and scientific communities, but there are also obstacles put up by medical insurance companies and a broad <clears throat> failure of the public domain to appreciate the hurdles faced by patients with rare diseases. Living without a diagnosis can impact a patient's physical, mental and emotional well-being, while receiving an accurate diagnosis can allow a patient and their family to move forward with a focus on managing future challenges. I'm so pleased to have a fantastic panel of experts who can provide us with insights and explanations. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Okay, I'd now like to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves. And I'd like to start with uh, Dr. Kim Boycott. Uh, Kim, over to you. Oh, thanks, Sean. Um, as, as you mentioned, my name is uh, Dr. Kim Boycott. I am a clinical geneticist. Uh, in Canada. I work in Ottawa. I'm also a clinician scientist, so I spend uh, about half of my time in the clinic and half of my time in the research lab, and my focus both in the clinic and my research program is rare diseases. Wonderful. Thank you, Kim. Uh, next up, we have uh, Dr. Bill Gall. Uh, Bill? Yes, uh, I'm a senior investigator at the National Human Genome Research Institute, and I study rare diseases, and I'm also the director of the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Program, which is part of the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Network. Great, thank you so much, Bill. Uh, third on the call is Jean-Louis Mandel. Uh, welcome, Jean-Louis. Hello, I am an MD, PhD. I've started working on uh, rare genetic disease on the molecular side in 1983, and I have been directing a uh, diagnostic lab uh, for uh, genetic disease uh, until uh, 2016. And I am currently president of the Foundation for Rare Disease, which is a French foundation. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Jean-Louis. And last but not least is Dr. Anne Odell-Luria. Hi. Thank you. Um, I am a clinical geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital, where I see children and adults with rare disease. Um, but I spend a majority of my time actually working as the co-director of the Center for Mendelian Genomics at the Broad Institute, which is a large-scale international research consortium that works to really find new disease genes and better improve our understanding of the variants that lead to genetic diagnoses. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Anne. Uh, in case some of our audience missed the first webinar or are new to the subject, um, Bill, I'm going to ask you if you can help us to understand how we define rare diseases. 
Sure. Well, in the United States, there's a definition of a rare disease as one that affects fewer than 200,000 individuals. In Europe, there's a definition of a rare disease as one that affects fewer than one in 2,000 individuals. And there are different definitions around the world of a rare disease. And I, I think that those are political or, in, in a way, economic definitions. But I think clinicians and uh, clinical geneticists uh, understand rare diseases in different ways, depending upon how many of those individuals with that particular disorder they see. Great. So um, we were chatting uh, via email um, earlier, and uh, um, Jean-Louis, you brought up an interesting point, um, which is, is why do children appear to be disproportionately impacted by rare diseases? It, it seems like a lot of them are found in children. Is there a reason for this? Yeah, uh, I guess uh, you know, medical genetics started really uh, mostly with uh, children disease, uh, pediatric disease. Uh, and there were a few uh, adult onset disease like Huntington disease that had a very specific presentation. But uh, so for a long time, uh, it was a, a pediatric diseases. And also uh, generally, if children are affected early on, they will keep the disease all the time, uh, while uh, adult onset, uh, they don't show the disease until maybe 30, 40, sometimes 60. So uh, this is different. And uh, what is uh, certain is that what is now more searching uh, 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 for um, uh, genetic disease uh, in adults than when was doing it 10 or 20 years ago. So. Recently, there had been neurogenerative disease that had been found to be rare monogenic disease, but this is quite recent. Mm -hmm. um, so, Anne, let me come to you. I, I believe you, you treat children in, in your work. So when do these diseases usually show up? When do you start seeing symptoms in, in children? There's supposed to be aspect of when the symptoms first appear and when they're recognized. So for a lot of rare diseases, it takes a while of seeing doctors and, and sort of looking for answers before it's realized that something more complicated or something more rare is going on that needs further investigation. Uh, I, I do. Some start prenatally and you see already you, uh, during pregnancy that indeed something does not go. Uh, other uh, will start uh, just uh, very early on. Other like Friedreich ataxia, for instance, will start between 7 and 10, 12. And other will start uh, even later. So there's no rule. It depends really on each disease. Each disease is uh, specific. I think I'd point out, too, that many children who have genetic diseases don't survive till adulthood. And that changes the number of uh, children who have it compared to the number of adults. So looking, looking at the flip side, are we missing rare diseases in adults, in, in adults, especially in, in the aged, uh, Jean-Louis? Totally. Uh, because we still don't know them all. You know, recently a, a frequent form of neurological disease has been found because the, the gene has been identified. Before, nobody really thought that it would be genetic. So we are discovering novel, rare genetic disease, I would say, every week. Mm -hmm. And I actually see a lot of adults as well as, as 
children and, and uh, prenatal <coughs> genetics. And I would say for the adults that we see, um, sometimes it becomes, they become more lost in the system because there are many things that can um, look like a rare genetic disease, but actually are caused by say diabetes, causing a nerve problem in the legs, or you know it, that could look like, a, that might look like a rare disease, for example, or it has a similar presentation to a rare disease. And so the, the frontline providers aren't really recognizing, oh wait, this, this actually could be because of a different cause. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I would point out that most uh, geneticists, clinical geneticists, especially are pediatricians. Uh, so they're aware of uh, genetic disorders. And it's only now that uh, we're coming around to recognizing adult genetic diseases more and having uh, internists and specialists uh, understand that. So, Anne, let me come back to you. Um, just more broadly, what factors are most critical in the length of time to diagnosis and why does diagnosis take so long? Uh, and adding to that, is, is it always possible to diagnose? So there's a lot of factors that go into this. The, one of the, I think of them almost as like the barriers or, or gates you have to cross. And so the first is recognizing that you should be thinking about something rare. And, and that's often you know, working with your pediatrician and your interest, internist and recognizing that something is going on that maybe needs another specialty level of consideration. And so then getting to the right doctor, whether that's a geneticist, a neurologist, a cardiologist, depending on what the, me the medical issues are, is another barrier. And then can you access those doctors? Can you access the doctors that maybe think a little bit outside of the box, think into the rare spectrum, have seen some of these things before? Because these, as as in the definitions and the term rare, we need a lot of collective knowledge to really understand and think about these conditions and realize these are out there. And then you get to accessing genetic testing. Not all of these are genetic, but a large proportion of them are. And so in many cases, these are things you can suspect clinically, but you need to send the appropriate testing. And then we have to figure out how to interpret the testing. So just because we can sequence something doesn't mean we're going to recognize the genetic change that is causing the the rare disease. And then after we recognize it, sort of then the next step is figuring out what to do with that information. So it's a very long and complicated process. And that can stretch from, you know, getting to a, getting to a doctor quickly, having sort of comprehensive testing sent and figuring something out really fast, or even just sending the right targeted test and figuring, getting an answer um, from the first step, or it can take a number of years and seeing a number of doctors to figure things out. Maybe I, I would add at, at uh, the beginning and at the end, there are two uh, issues. At the beginning, uh, at least in France, uh, maybe in the US too, it's how the GP where the first, the parent complained that there is something that doesn't go, believes in it, or try to say, oh, there is a language delay, but you know, this is just right now and in two months it will be solved or behavior manifestations uh, you know, maybe there is something in the family or so uh, the, the first thing is that a, the doctor really believes it's a real problem. And that takes may take time for some a disease with a, a slow beginning. Uh, so this is the uh, at the beginning and then having a specialist that then think it may be genetic. But at the end, also, uh, one should know that there has been an extraordinary uh, improvement in uh, genetic diagnosis 
in the past 10 years. And often I see families that say, yeah, but uh, my son has been tested. Uh, there was a genetic test 10 years ago, uh, but that, and it was negative. But that doesn't mean that if you redo it now, even if it was done five years ago, and depending which test, uh, so a negative test is a negative test for the uh, type of uh, uh, um, assay that was used at the time of a certain knowledge. And the logic is changing every month, every year. So a negative diagnosis can become positive because uh, there is advanced uh, knowledge. Mm -hmm. We certainly uh, have experience with families that have a child who has a particular disorder uh, and they don't know what the disorder is. And when this first comes to light, they pursue a diagnosis very aggressively and sometimes for a year or two years or three years or so. But then they begin to accept the diagnosis, uh, the, the fact that there's no diagnosis and, and uh, they fall off and, and don't pursue it for a while. And then sometimes five, 10 years later or so, they see something on TV or they read the paper or something and they find out that uh, genetics has really come a long way. And then there's a recrudescence of interest uh, in that. And we get a lot of uh, families that have had that history of, uh, let's say, um, a hiatus in pursuit. Mm -hmm. I am sure, Kim, you and and uh, Anne and uh, Jean-Louis have had the same experience. Totally. Yeah, we've actually just looked at that um, uh, uh, at participants who are who are um, engaging in our. Care for Canada research, um, rare disease research pipeline looking for a diagnosis. We actually mapped out all of their um, investigations from prenatal all the way to their current age. And just exactly as Bill is describing, you see these focal areas of activity by a trigger investigation and a little bit happens. And then there's a quiet for a year or two and then it happens again. And as Bill pointed out, for some families that um, are participating in some of our research programs, there's a quiet time for 20 years. Mm. Uh, before they come back because there's been some something new that's happened. It's an unusual, the rare disease is an unusual field in that so much more is being learned all the time. I mean, if you are needing management of your hypertension, your high blood pressure, maybe there's a new medication every once in a while, but for the most part, the knowledge is what we have. But for rare disease, there's over 200 new diseases described every year. The techniques we're using in diagnostics are actually still changing almost every year. We're able to recognize more of the variation that contributes to disease. So it's just, it's a much faster moving field than a lot of other medical specialties. And some of that is just because for so long we knew so little that now we're kind of starting to catch up and understand more. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me maybe put this to Kim. How would patients or the families of patients know where to look? Where can they go for this type of information? Are there resources or is it just, you know, as Bill said, sort of happenstance that they, they come across a TV program or a news item? Yeah, I would say for our patients, for our families and patients and families in Canada, it's not so much that they're coming across it in the news or, or in the paper. Um, I think it most often gets triggered by some sort of new aspect of their presentation or, um, something that has happened in their life that makes whatever they were dealing with a little bit more challenging. And so they re-enter the system and they get this fresh set of eyes in terms of, you know, where's where's the best place um, for you to go. Um, but I also think that Google and, and the equivalent search engines, engines have changed tremendously since I first finished training 
you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, and so people can put in um, symptoms and go to all sorts of resources, um, many, you know, for North America, which are supported by the NIH, um, and then many in Europe, which are supported by um, programs like OrphanNet and things like that. And so they have access to all this information to really empower them to ask the right questions um, to their care providers. And because of a lot of rare diseases run in families, I think you see a lot of that initial flurry of sending a lot of testing and thinking about it as they're planning for other children. Um, and then after a while, you know, they, they're often siblings, they're growing up, they're thinking about starting their own families, and sometimes it restarts that, that genetic search. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to move on uh, to sort of change tack a little bit to talk about the, the importance of a rare disease diagnosis. Um, and the first question I, I want to ask sort of broadly, what does a diagnosis really mean to a patient? And um, sort of another way that I think of that is if, if there's no treatment available, is a diagnosis still important? Um, so Jean-Louis, why don't we start with, with you on this question? Yes, uh, I think it is indeed very important to be able to put a cause and a name uh, and uh, I uh, uh, have a lot of interest in the um, uh, disease with intellectual disability with sometimes behavior uh, problems or, uh, or um, uh, neurological uh, problem. And often the parents, you know, uh, have this, this child that does not behave, behave well. And from the outside, they think this is a fault of the parents, you know, that they are not uh, educating the child. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, having uh, uh, a cause and a name identified is a first thing that I have not done something wrong. Like, you know, I drank a glass of wine when I was pregnant. Uh, uh, could this be the, the, the cause? So I think uh, this is uh, one thing. And secondly, it means that there are people interested, there are doctors, professionals, researchers interested in that disease uh, and that are working to try to make things better, to better care. Uh, um, and the, the third thing is that it allows uh, uh, parents uh, and, and children who are affected by a similar disease to meet other families with similar uh, uh, problems in association, Facebook groups. And so it allows to share information and to know that, okay, it's rare, but we are not the only one to be faced with this. Certainly, um, go ahead. Oh, okay, thanks, Bill. I was just gonna say, I, um, I think what we hear um, from, from our families is, especially within the Canadian system, is about visibility. Um, and what they describe is visibility within the system. And this is not only within the healthcare system, but also within our social systems. And I think, you know, for those um, conditions where you say, Sean, you know, we can't, you know, necessarily treat or reverse what has happened, the visibility in the social systems, such as school and um, community, that sort of thing, allows them to have access to resources they would otherwise not have without that clear diagnosis. It literally is a tag of visibility. Um, and families, um, quite rightly recognize that their ability to navigate those systems is much better if they're visible. Yeah, I think people can think about what the prognosis might be. What does the future hold for them? There's a possibility of treatment. Um, as mentioned, 
being a member of a community is incredibly important. There's the issue of uh, trust and relationships with colleagues. Uh, for example, if you have an undiagnosed disease and you can't name it, then there's a certain amount of suspicion associated with you're really having that disease. At least we notice that in some of our families and, and, and patients. And your colleagues wonder why you're missing uh, work. Uh, and even your relatives wonder that. And even physicians wonder that. And, and it's uh, particularly difficult for a patient to go to a physician to look for help and uh, to have the physician, first of all, not know what to do, feel inadequate and awkward, and sometimes not want to see that patient because the physician feels awkward. Mm -hmm. So there's an incredible amount of solace associated with the diagnosis. And I'll just mention one man that I saw in his uh, 60s who had some motor disease, came from Cleveland. He was a police officer, came with his loving wife. And I saw him just briefly on Monday. And then we had a diagnosis that he had ALS on, on Friday. And this and when we told the wife, she, she hugged me and she hardly knew me. And she hugged me when we gave her husband a death sentence. It meant so much to her and to her family to know how to proceed uh, with the family's life. Uh, it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. I would point out that the other aspect is the uh, this tells about recurrence risk? Are there possibilities that the same couple may have a child affected by the same disease, or maybe the uh, the sister of the affected child and who consider being pregnant uh, uh, can uh, she have also an affected uh, um, uh, baby with the same disease? So knowing whether there is a risk of recurrence in the family, and sometimes the family at large. I've uh, been doing a lot on fragile X, and sometimes you have distant cousins that may be at risk of having a severely uh, uh, intellectually disabled child uh, because of the disease that was once diagnosed in a second cousin. Yeah, and I, I think I, I just, or sorry, and I, I would just add to that, that I think we have to always remember, or always have to remind people that um, diagnosis is, is a cornerstone of, of medicine. That's what we do. It's part of what we do. This is what doctors and physicians and, and allied health providers, this is what we're all working towards is diagnosis. Should be no different if you have a rare disease. I wanted to add that it, it adds a lot of empowerment for families that I, I think the psychological relief on its own is fully justifies the need for a diagnosis and the medical care. But there are families that are able to start support groups and, and build the communities. And then they are able to take these on to thinking about therapeutics to build up research and for their rare disease. But if they're not having a diagnosis and not being able to come together and share this knowledge, then that's a totally missed opportunity without having a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, Bill, let me come back to you with the next question um, related to this. And what that is, what are the dangers of a misdiagnosis versus no diagnosis? Well, the patients who don't have a diagnosis have been searching for one for a long time. And a lot of the things that they do in searching for a diagnosis uh, could be risky. And for example, you can push a physician into operating on an abdomen. I mean, that, 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 ha that happens. 
or getting other invasive tests. And some families in desperation seek what I would call quack medicines uh, that are harmful uh, for them. So that's um, a really difficult issue if you don't have a diagnosis. Not only that, but once you have a diagnosis, there's a possibility of treatment. And, and sometimes the diagnosis is not a new disease that has no treatment. It can be a disease that does have a treatment. So any delay in diagnosis is a delay in treatment as well. And then, you know, all of the benefits that we mentioned of having a diagnosis are missing during the time when you don't have one. So community, uh, trust, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. um, Kim, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I was just gonna add to that, Sean. I think there's some good European data and we have some Canadian data that looks at the number of misdiagnoses um, that families experience on their diagnostic journey, um, which some people refer to as a diagnostic odyssey because it's sort of, you know, it's a bit chaotic. Um, uh, so the Eurotis, um, uh, which is the, the large uh, patient organization or umbrella for patient organizations in Europe and the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. And they come up with numbers of three to five, sometimes three to 11 misdiagnoses along the way. Um, there can be all kinds of reasons for that. And, you know, this may have been, you know, suggested as a possibility or the clinical presentation evolves over time, or, you know, it's just plain wrong. Um, and every time that happens, you've delayed that diagnostic journey to the to, to its ultimate endpoint, which should be the correct diagnosis. Uh, and so I think it just further confounds what we're talking about and has the potential, as Bill mentioned, to cause harm because of all the other things that might be done and in the spirit of that uh, initially incorrect diagnosis. So how does the particular type of medical system in a country impact what we've just been talking about, the, the reaching a diagnosis or misdiagnosis and the, the level of testing? Um, I mean, in the, in the US, there seems to be a lot of testing for different diseases. Uh, doctors usually want to cover themselves, hospitals as well. Uh, in other countries like Canada, I'm not sure it's quite the same. So, Kim, maybe I'll start with you, and then uh, we can come to Jean-Louis. Sure. Uh, Canada is an easier place to start with, I think, <laughs> compared to the U.S., um, just because we have a little bit more of a uniform healthcare system. But our, in saying that, our healthcare system is actually a group of provincial and territorial healthcare systems. So, healthcare is provincially or territorial um, deployed. Uh, in Canada, um, which means that within a single jurisdiction, so an entire province like Ontario, where I'm from, where there's about 14 million people, um, the standard of care is pretty similar. Access is similar, though I say that very carefully and that there'd probably be some that would argue. Um, and, you know, we, we obviously we are challenged with things in Canada like northern, um, you know, our northern communities and things like that. And how do they access? But, you know, overall, I think it, from a world perspective, it's 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 fairly uniform. The challenge we have in Canada is that um, what may be covered for testing by the you know the, by the province is different from province to province and territory to territory, um, and so that becomes a challenge around equity, um, and you know that that sort of thing. So. Um, I imagine in, in France, for, for Jean-Louis, again, it's, it's probably a somewhat of a similar system, and then we can let our American colleagues go. I think maybe the case in France is interesting, because uh, uh, what pushed really the system to organize was actually the French uh, Muscular Dystrophy Association that started organize an immensely popular telethon 
in the uh, early 1980s. And that it was so popular that they started to have also political power, pressure power. Mm. And they forced the, the government to have a Plan National Maladie Rare, Rare Disease National Plan, to organize the fact that we have now uh, reference centers and competence centers for uh, different types of rare disease. They are organizing, for instance, networks for muscle disease, networks for eye disease, networks for rheumatoid disease, etc., rare rheumatoid disease. And this means that now, once a doctor has thought that it may be genetic and then start to contact these uh, uh, centers and it's spread in, into the, uh, uh, the wall of the country, more or less, uh, then it's sure that they will have access to uh, uh, competent people who know about these diseases, who know about diagnosis. But the first thing is that the doctor has to think, yes, it may be a muscle genetic disease. It may be, it may be a neurological uh, genetic disease or rare disease. Mm -hmm. uh, so Bill, Anne, which of you would like to take the US on? <laughs> well, I, just so I'll mention something I was sort of waiting for Anne, but, and I would mention to Kim that many people think that the United States system is provincial uh, as well, <laughs> but probably in a different sense. Different way, yeah. Yes. So I would say uh, uh, two things. <clears throat> One is that for rare diseases, it's pretty much true that you have to go to a university-based center. And uh, I would ask uh, Anne if she would confirm that or not, or deny that, but, but uh, universities, medical centers have experts and do research and have uh, funding for this and are uh, often associated with uh, advocacy groups. And so they, they have the knowledge base and the expertise. So there's a referral system that starts with a um, primary care physician and uh, goes up to a university-based system. And the, the other issue is the insurance system that we have for reimbursement. And very often, one um, a patient or a family needs to get approval for certain tests to be done in order to eliminate such and such a diagnosis to go on to the next possibility to the next possibility and all of those uh, the approvals for insurance take time so it can take let's say a month or so to get approval for one test which is done as an outpatient basis then and that may eliminate something. And then you have to go through the same process again. And that's why it takes so long, at least in the United States, for patients with rare diseases to finally reach a diagnosis. And the, the insurance empowers a lot of families to, to get testing, but, but it, there are some insurances that won't cover genetic testing well. There's not really a good way to tell. And it, it's not necessarily like how good your insurance is. It, it's just what their policies are about genetic testing. And so it's confusing for families. It's actually really confusing for doctors. And so a lot of doctors are probably not sending as much genetic testing as they would like to because it's complicated for them to figure out how to access it. And, and that's another reason why it tends to be more academic centers that have a little more support, see patients that they more frequently be interested in or wanting to send genetic testing that they get a little more savvy on the systems. Um, and then there's a lot of patients that I see that I, I have a strong, strong suspicion that they have a Mendelian you know, rare disease caused by a genetic condition that we should be able to diagnose by genetic testing. 
and I just cannot get the testing covered. And I'm in a privileged position in that I'm connected to a lot of research studies and at Boston Children's Hospital, we in general have connections to research studies. And so we refer them over there and that's an option that many families choose to, to enroll in research and to access genetic testing that way. Uh, we have one called the Rare Genomes Project that works with any families anywhere across the US that's really trying to get away from the <clears> geographic <throat> model of having to come to an academic center and be able to work with families locally in their communities with their own physicians. Um, but it it's still like, getting that access out there has still been really challenging. Um, so it, yeah, it's the, it, there's a huge difference in, in access to what you have based on, on where you live and what doctors you see, and that's a problem. And yes. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jean-Louis. Yeah, sometimes things that would look very good, uh, for instance, in France, uh, to have this very uh, uh, good genetic test, which is uh, called an exome, if you do it in, in an academic uh, lab, which is the way you do, you don't pay for it. So that's very good. But the problem is that these academic labs are not funded enough to do as many exomes as they would wish. So what was a good thing in terms of you don't have to pay for it means that you may have to wait for it because there is not enough funding so that they can do uh, uh, as many that would be needed. I was just going to I was going to add, um, Sean, that I think um, one of the things the pandemic has taught us, and I don't know if we can go through this hour without mentioning it, but the pandemic has taught us is um, with respect to access is how much we can actually do by virtual care, sure. and that's been a remarkable. Um, you know, experience over the last year in terms of how to deliver genetics virtually. And it has allowed us to see our patients and families in areas such as Baffin Island, which, which my center looks after, um, by having them go to their closest nursing station and they can see me there. There's a nurse there to do measurements. We can take photographs. We can do almost everything from there, take blood samples, and they never have to take the big long flight um, down to see us in Ottawa. And if it's the winter time, they actually, you know, don't then have to take um, the big long flight, which is a whole thing uh, mm -hmm. when there's snowstorms and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the, the pandemic has clearly uh, impacted our world in many ways that, uh, you know, th things are going to be very different going forward um, and hopefully in many positive ways. Um, but bef before we move off this topic, there's one other one other piece that I wanted to touch on, and that's newborn screening. Um, and this is actually a topic we're going to be covering in a um, it's a, a webinar in the future on actually June 17th, um, so tune in for that if you can. But I, I did want to discuss it here and, and talk about the importance of newborn screening. Uh, I know that, or my understanding is that different countries do it differently. They test for different uh, diseases. And even, I think, in the U.S., within different states, they, they use different tests. So, um, Anne, why don't we, we come to you with this question? Um, you know, can you outline the importance of, of neonatal screening and maybe where some of the challenges or deficits are. Yeah, so in, the, in Massachusetts, we screen for about 60 conditions. It's a, a heel prick that's done on every baby that's born and a few drops of blood are transferred to a card that's then sent to the state lab that does a number of different tests, all on this, these you know, few drops of blood that are collected from each newborn. And from this, we can find out information about the risk of developing a condition that's treatable we can figure this out within the first few days of a baby's life. There are some conditions that that's just helpful information and you refer them to doctors and you can um, 
to ameliorate the course. And there are some that are babies that it would actually present in a, you know, in a few days or sometimes present around the time you get the result very sick. And so having that information and knowing about the treatments you need to implement are really powerful. Um, it's only for about 60 conditions in part because you want, it's focused right now on things that are, are treatable, um, but it's also focused on things that we can detect from the types of testing that we do, which largely aren't genetic, which are largely um, metabolic or enzyme assays on the, the blood spots. And so I think there's a lot more potential to, to expand this. This is what we're doing right now in Massachusetts. And in the United States, the states decide because the state legislatures are, are paying for it. Hmm. And uh, most of the diseases that are screened in the newborn period are rare diseases, but the most common one is hypothyroidism. And that has an enormous impact uh, upon uh, people. The screening is done by a procedure called the mass spectrometry. And uh, that may be changing, you know, slowly <laughs> to, to uh, into a molecular screen. But there are issues with molecular screens, um, let's say detecting people who have only one allele mutated in a um, recessive disorder. So in other words, uh, you could call this a, a molecular screen, first screen, um, one that might have a lot of false positives that have to be pursued. Um, but there are false positives with a mass spec analysis now too. Um, anyway, things are evolving and newborn screening is spectacular in terms of its effect upon the lives of people who are detected and can be treated early. Uh, maybe what one can add that uh, some uh, uh, disease uh, that are not so rare who until uh, a, a couple of years were not on the agenda of neonatal screening like very severe muscle disease, uh, uh, spinal am amyotrophy. Uh, uh, suddenly uh, become uh, targets because there is an efficient treatment, but the treatment is only efficient if it's administered very early in the first weeks of the life of the child. Mm -hmm. So nobody was considering doing neonatal screening of uh, uh, spinal amyotrophy two or three years ago, but things have changed because you have an efficient treatment that requires a very early diagnosis. Right, so um, I'm going to come to you, uh, Kim, with, with this uh, one last question in this topic area on, on the importance of diagnosis, and that's the, the role of genetic counseling in this sort of diagnostic journey. Um, now that a lot more DNA testing is being done and um, it's a lot broader, so we're testing full exomes. We're even testing. Uh, we're even uh, looking at full genomes sometimes. So, what? Are, where does the genetic counselor uh, play a role? Hmm. Well, possibly uh, two places, probably. Um, and as we, it, it may evolve over time, but definitely for the um, pre-test counselling and post-test counselling and, and support. I think um, pre-test counselling, I think, is particularly important for those. Um, you know, genetic tests that that have, you know, some pretty serious implications about future health, um, may be predictive in nature, may be uncertain in nature, um, may have other um, things tied to it, like potential for discrimination and things like that. I think that's where it's really important for genetic counseling, genetic counseling itself to have a, a major role. And then with the post-test counseling, so with results, um, I think is it, I think it's still really important to have a 
an actual human um, involved in that process. And you, you may, many of us are probably aware that there are a lot of, you know, companies that do testing and, and you get some sort of, you know, online um, type of genetic counseling and that sort of thing. But that really just contributes, I think, to the access accessibility issues for families. Um, and, and uh, you know, a big part of that post-test counseling is around education uh, and empowerment. And I think that um, to make that fair for all, it really needs to be done by somebody who can connect with that patient and family on an individual basis and meet the needs that they actually have. Great. Right now, there's such a need for genetic counselors that you can easily get a job. <laughs> and that is a good advice for young people. If you're interested in something that's academic and personally satisfying, genetic counseling is really a good option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Canada, they're literally hired uh, the day after they graduate, if not oh. before. Oh, amazing. Um, so I, I wanted to move on to the, the final topic of today's discussion, which is some of the challenges that remain for uh, rare disease diagnosis. So um, the, the first question I wanted to ask is, are we getting better at diagnosing rare diseases? Uh, and um, also related to that is, are we getting better at detecting new rare diseases? Um, so, Bill, uh, let's start with you. Well, certainly we're, we're getting better. A part of this is education and learning. Part of it is what the literature contains in terms of the number of new diseases, as Anne mentioned, two, 200 uh, every year or so, just new diseases. But the other issue is the tools that we have. As Jean-Louis mentioned, uh, the exome sequencing and uh, now genome sequencing and better means of analyzing that and having insurance companies pay for that. I mean, now in our undiagnosed diseases program, more than half of the patients whom we see have already had exome sequencing. And it's more in children than in adults, of course. But, but uh, all of those things have enormously improved our rates of diagnosis. And still we miss a lot. Uh, in other words, uh, for us, uh, when we see individuals who have been to many other centers already, we still achieve only about 30% in terms of our diagnosis, in part because they've been selected already to have gone to university centers. But, but the point is that there's still a lot out there because there are a lot of new diseases. So while I would say that we've come a long way, we still have a long way to go. And one way to look at it is if we have 23,000 genes and there are maybe eight, 10,000 known diseases, you know, we only have a portion of those maybe four or 5,000 or so that have been defined. And so we have to define new diseases and we have to, um, let's say, uh, train and educate our physicians in uh, detection of rare diseases and in pursuit of new diseases. And, and then uh, the public has to recognize how to proceed if they have a family member or they themselves have uh, something that is undiagnosed. And, and that involves a certain sequence of going to one physician, and then another physician, then university physician, then maybe some center uh, like the centers that uh, Kim and Anne and Jean-Louis uh, conduct. Um, maybe there is a, a limitation that maybe we there are some diseases that we will never be really able to put a name on it because there is not just a single cause. It 
maybe an interaction between uh, two or th uh, things occurring at two or three different genes, and it start to be very, very difficult to sort this out, or in interaction with environment. And, uh, you know, a, a classic disease uh, when, when I was a, a young medical student was uh, called G6PD deficiency, where you would start to be maybe very sick if you have eaten fava beans. Mm -hmm. Now, because this was a disease that was quite frequent in Mediterranean uh, uh, countries, it was recognized. But imagine uh, a, a disease where you have this interaction between environment and the genetic predisposition. It may be very difficult and we need a lot of research before we can uh, diagnose more and more of this more complex disease, not just one where there is one mutation that really explains most of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would reiterate that. I think as we've mentioned this um, exome sequencing that came along 10 years ago, and we're still talking about accessibility uh, for patients and access, uh, was has been remarkable in terms of the rare diseases it's been able to diagnose. Uh, and it still has great potential. It's still <clears throat> upward curved for sure. Um, but I think these new technologies that many of us on this um, on this webinar work on um, are all going to need to come back into the same process the way that exomes have finally come in uh, and become accessible to patients because um, exomes can't do everything. There's some disease mechanisms that are just beyond its reach. There is still a lot within the exome that I think we we all agree that we need to find. And, and some of the hints for that are, again, the pace that we are still finding. There are still in literature about 200 new disease gene associations every year. But the other side of that is um, a lot of the ways we figure out these new links are by looking not just at the exome data, the, so the sequencing all the genes and patients with rare disease, but it's comparing it to the genetic variation we just see in the thousands, sorry, billions of people on this planet. So we can get a sense of what kind of variation do we not see in the, the general population that doesn't have rare disease that will maybe be enriched in, in rare, patients with rare disease. And so when we look at that, we actually, there are still thousands of genes that we see depletion for disruptive variation in the general population. And so these are gonna, these are candidate disease genes, but we don't know the phenotypes yet. And so there just needs to be more access to sequencing and these reference databases that we use, like the genome aggregation database, those need to grow and we need to get more data into them. And so there's a lot of efforts to do that also that's going to empower um, a lot of discovery. Yeah, we often get some clues from animals or organisms uh, that have mutations in some of those genes. Um, and the other point I'd make is that uh, there sometimes is an incredible emphasis on next generation sequencing, which means exome sequencing or genome sequencing. But we shouldn't forget about how important it is for physicians to talk to each other over a particular patient and, and share information, share their expertise. You know, being just being um, over the bed of a patient or even outside the hall and talking about the, the particular uh, disorder and the, its manifestations. And someone will say, well, have you thought of such and such? And that interaction is incredibly important for making a diagnosis of a rare disease and even for the discovery of new diseases. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think one of the big challenges that we're facing um, now as this exome sequencing, for example, and genome sequencing are coming into the clinic, they're being reimbursed by healthcare jurisdictions, um, is that because this is now being done in primarily uh, in the healthcare system, uh, there's the natural tendency to silo off that data and not share it as we have done previously in the past mm. with research mm. uh, endeavors like, like Bill's Undiagnosed uh, Disease Program and, and Centers for Mendelian Genomics. When, when patients and families are enrolled in research, you know, they're looking for answers and they're keen to share with whomever um, can help them find that answer. But in the healthcare system, that culture of sharing is not quite as strong yet, and it really does need to be for rare disease. Um, and so, at least in Canada, we're really trying to push that agenda forward. How do we share between different healthcare custodians, essentially data custodians, um, such that we can make the test better for everybody? And that's really, really critical, um, especially in, in countries like Canada where our population is lower. Um, you know, one center is not gonna do hundreds of thousands of these things by themselves. Um, we have to be able to share um, amongst ourselves for sure. I, I would uh, really say that actually, uh, because of some diseases are extremely rare, and at one point you find a variation in knowing whether this is causing disease or not, start to be a very uh, uh, difficult problem. We need sharing at the international uh, level, and there are already international databases but there is not enough information in them. So I think there should be an international policy to try to uh, have more sharing uh, at the international level uh, uh, because you need numbers, you know, uh, you need to have for if a disease is very, very rare uh, or a, a variant is very rare, you know, need to know about what is the, uh, the 10 people in the world that are sharing, are they, affected or not. So I think that we really need to push uh, for this international cooperation that would include also uh, um, uh, de some details at least about uh, the uh, phenotype, about the clinical manifestation of the patient. Because when you have just a database where you see, okay, there was uh, some people with this uh, particular variant, uh, but you don't know what was their medical manifestations. You cannot really interpret it. So we, we really need much more of these databases. As we get into these ultra rare conditions, there absolutely will be conditions that there are currently only 10 to 50 people within the world. And so if you think how many countries we have in the world, there's no way this is these are going to be identified without having better integration of the data. And we can do this in ways that are safe with data security and regulations to make sure that the data is used responsibly by scientists and physicians and that there are protections against re-identifying of patients or anything like that. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but this is work that the community is able to do. Great, thank you. It's a, the data sharing clearly is a really critical component. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that we got to talk about that. I, I do want to come back, though, to um, something that a couple of you have mentioned, and that's access, um, and particularly access to people um, in disadvantaged communities uh, who are geographically isolated um, or are in countries where maybe they don't have the medical infrastructure to do this type of testing. So, Kim, maybe I can come to you since you mentioned you have patients at Baffin Island, which is clearly quite remote. Um, how can this better be handled both uh, in Canada and in other countries, do you think? 
Yeah, well, the advantage of our Baffin Island experience and also the, the we call it the near north, um, Baffin is the far north and the near north that also mm -hmm. happens, um, is that the we're able to approach that problem with virtual care now that we've got all this great experience on how to deliver it pretty effectively. But the key um, component to all of that and why it works is, is that they're covered by healthcare. And they're covered with the same healthcare as somebody who lives in the urban center, just because they're rural doesn't mean they don't get the same test. So that has made this, um, I think, a much easier uh, problem to try to tackle uh, in Canada. Uh, it would be very different um, if if there there are marginalized groups that don't have access to to healthcare, or as Anne described for us, um, uh, an insurance plan if they have one. Uh, that covers genetic testing that should be uh, would be appropriate for somebody in that particular circumstance. That's a bigger challenge. And, and then when you go to developing countries, um, you know, how do you sort of begin to help um, in, in, in that situation where, you know, rare diseases probably aren't their biggest priority? Um, you know, they've got things like infectious diseases and water quality and food access and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and I think there's a, a number of international bodies like the International um, uh, Rare Diseases Research Consortium and the, the, um, the Global Commission and the Diagnostic Odyssey for Children, for example, um, who really have started to tackle, try to tackle and brainstorm around that um, de developing country set of challenges. Um, and I think in the end, it boils down to a, a mentorship program um, with, uh, you know, folks like ourselves and colleagues um, who are able to support those countries that are making that transition um, to, to be able to help their, their families with rare diseases get answers. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And sometimes a champion is needed. Mm -hmm. uh, and the champion can be either inside or outside of that community. Uh, in the Undiagnosed Diseases Network International Organization, there's now a developing nations working group that is pursuing the uh, access within uh, low and middle income countries for uh, diagnostics and even treatment for rare and undiagnosed diseases. Maybe I would uh, like to point out one, one issue about diagnosis, that uh, having the proper diagnosis is not the end of uh, what the uh, <clears throat> a patient or parents uh, are looking <clears throat> for. And often, you know, because of exome, you find uh, the, the, the mutation and you say, okay, your child have this uh, uh, very important neurological disease or uh, intellectual disability because of mutation in DERK1A. Okay, so at least they were looking for a name, a cause, they have it. But then very soon they will start to make, okay, what does it mean for the child? What it, does it mean when he will age? And uh, they start to have some epilepsy. Uh, uh, will this uh, be something that get worse? Will, will he get worse with time or it will be stable or he can improve, he can start learning to speak, etc. And all this you need actually for each of these 5,000, 7,000 of rare disease, you actually need to know what is a natural history? What are the, what we call comorbidities? For instance, he has digestive problem. You know, he has a neurological dis uh, disease, but also digestive problem. Is it part of the disease or just by chance? 
And I think it's very important that we try to, and this also has to be done internationally, uh, to have sharing of data on the uh, uh, medical history as they age, so that we can tell the parents also what may be working, what you have to look for uh, to prevent uh, eventually. So I think this is also something that needs after diagnosis to be developed. Mm -hmm. Great, so in the, just the, the last couple of minutes that we have remaining, I wanted to come to one last question. Uh, we'll start with you, Anne, and we'll, we'll just go around. Uh, I'll give you each a, a, a chance to answer. Um, what should the general public know about rare diseases so that they can be better advocates for patients and families? When we talk about how individually these conditions are so rare, there are so many of them that in aggregate, um, you all know have friends or possibly family members who have rare disease. And so just being, you know, both being there for them, this is a hard thing to go through having some something that is so rare that doctors don't always have um, understanding of and, and school systems and families may not have understanding of. So um, actually like, just sort of being a, a good community member and, and asking questions, individuals with a diagnosed rare disease are become experts on their rare disease. Mm. Not everyone wants to talk about it, but for those that do, just being there for them. And for those seeking answers, just to share the message that we are we have learned a lot more and, and keep keep talking to your doctors and your other um, healthcare workers that keep keep searching, that there's a lot more to be found. Mm -hmm. uh, Jean-Louis, how about you? You go next. Yeah, I, I would think that the most important is what should know the GPs about uh, uh, rare disease. They should not know about all the rare disease, but they should uh, know that something that starts, that does not uh, seem to be so severe, but that the parent has recognized as not like other, uh, other children. They should have this question, could it be a rare disease? Could we, it be a genetic disease? because this is the way to then go uh, to more specialized items. So I think uh, uh, this would be important, you know, for GPs uh, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, Kim, we'll go to you next. Sure. Um, I guess I would say um, also, I think that the public support for research into rare diseases is still important to continue because as Anne said, we're still learning so much more about them. Um, and I think the public should also recognize that insights we get into rare disease actually um, oftentimes help, help, help us with common diseases. Absolutely. And so scientific advancement in and of itself um, and rare diseases actually give us a really um, important insight into some of the really big common problems that are faced, faced by many. And there's lots of examples of how that's been a success. Mm. Thank you, Kim. Make sure you may say that uh, the RNA vaccine, the messenger RNA vaccines were actually developed with a technology that a uh, company thought could be applicable for rare disease. And this is, uh, at least some of the companies developed these to treat rare disease and then saw the opportunity to actually use the, the strategy uh, to uh, develop very, very rapidly vaccines for COVID-19. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, Bill, you get the last word. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I, I would say uh, I agree with everything that people have said. I would also suggest that someone or a family with rare disease keep medical records assiduously. 
Uh, those are incredibly important and, and not just the written medical records, but also the discs of the images and uh, access to pathology slides if you're able to, to, to get them, if there have been biopsies. Also keep reading and recognize that there's a, a sequence of events to go to in terms of your physicians. You know, your, your first your general practitioner, then uh, specialists, and then uh, university-based uh, researchers um, in the pursuit of the diagnosis of a rare or undiagnosed diseases. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Bill. Um, thanks to all of you. You've been fantastic guests, but we are unfortunately out of time, so we're going to need to end things there. Um, I wanted to thank you all for your generosity, taking the time out of your busy schedules to do yet another Zoom call with us. Uh, but it, it really has been a pleasure hearing from all of you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this webinar is only the second in a year-long series, so please look out for future events at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, thank you once again to our fantastic panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone, and thanks again. Thank you.